Isaiah chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and singing and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, good morning. My name is Josiah. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. It's my joy to bring God's word um, to you guys today. Um, thank you, Ben, for leading us um, in those songs, man, just preparing our hearts this morning. We have a great hope, don't we, church? We have a great hope. Colossians tells us it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's our hope, man, today. And we have a great hope. We also live in a world that doesn't see that hope very often. Um, Us too, we often uh, forget this great hope, which is ours. That's kind of what we look at today. Um, in the passage that we just read. It's this amazing hope set ahead for us in Christ. And these are promises that God gives us. But how often do we forget these promises, right? I, uh, I read recently, th- this week, um, that life expectancy in the U.S. has come down to 78.6 years on average. So 78.6 years. The Wall Street Journal printed an article on a recently released study on this life expectancy and documenting how in 2017, that was our average, and it had fallen a tenth of a point for the last four years. And I'll read an excerpt of it. Excerpt of it. it says, the 2017 data paint a dark picture of health and well-being in the U.S., reflecting the effects of addiction and despair, particularly among young and middle-aged adults, as well as diseases plaguing on aging population, people with lower access to health care. The U.S. has lost three-tenths of a year in life expectancy since 2014, 
a stunning reversal for a developed nation and lags far behind other wealthy nations. And he gives some examples. Life expectancy is 84.1 years in Japan, 83.7 years in Switzerland. First and second in the most recent ranking by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. The U.S. ranks 29th on that list. It doesn't seem like a lot, three-tenths, but in terms of human cost, you've got a lot of life that's not being lived, said Bob Anderson, chief of the Mortality Statistics Branch of the CDC's National Center for Health Statistics. Whether you're a Christian here or not this morning, we all feel a brokenness in the world, something that is and should not be so, something that is but shouldn't be. It doesn't matter if we know why it is. We just know it shouldn't be so. The fact that people cannot see another way forward, another step ahead, except to take that final step and end their own life, paints this picture, this fact that there is still much brokenness in this world. There's this brokenness to our world. It's at large. As Christians, we see the story behind the story, though. Right? We, we fight alongside, no, actually we, we lead the charge in seeing a change in our world, to see brokenness undone. But we understand that hope is not found in this earth, in this world that we live in. And so we're pointing to something further off, yet also very near. Right? Something that is so complex, yet so simple. Something not fully realized, but still understood in a way today. The gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus. It's the hope of the gospel. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel offers hope to a despairing world. It is our hope today. Still, it was last week when you came to church, the week before. It is this week again. It will be next week and tomorrow and the next day and so on and so forth. The gospel is our hope. The gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's not just relating to a physical despair, not just the despair that we feel in this world relating to um, wanting to just take our own life, as some may feel. But there's a deeper and eternal despair that is for all who have not found their hope in this gospel. The gospel is not the thing that just simply saves us, right, to live happily here on earth. The gospel is the power of God for salvation unto all who believe, and it is for living here and for our future. Isaiah 35 it stands in stark contrast to chapter 34. Both deal with God's judgment. And we're not going to talk about chapter 34, but just to kind of give us some context here. They both deal with God's judgment. One is a judgment of eternal destruction, and the other is a judgment of eternal life. That there is a day coming, Isaiah is telling us, there is a day coming approaching the whole earth when God's judgment will be realized. I want to bring us to Jesus' words before we start this chapter in Matthew 25. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. I think it's going to be on the screen with us. Um, Chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 31 
And I'm going to, I'm going to skip around a couple verses here, but hear what Jesus tells us. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Skip down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and angels. Verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You may say, that's just a bunch of doomsday mumbo-jumbo. And I would say to that, I wish it were so. This preaching thing would be a lot easier if that were the case. There is a reality that is deeper than our physical reality. And we often forget this because we're just so fixated on here and now. But there's a reality that God will come and he will judge the whole earth. And Jesus will be standing, and there will be those that will enter in eternal life with him, and those who will enter into eternal damnation for all eternity. Pastor Ray Ortland talks about how we choose two things in life. I'm going to read this quote. We're either going to enjoy earthly salvation, or we're going to enjoy God's salvation. He says, the salvation you prefer now, whether earthly or heavenly, is shaping who you are and which direction you will go forever. You need to understand that hell or heaven will be, in one sense, the eternal extension of the deepest, truest you that you can become in this life. So here is the most important question of your existence. What are you becoming? Whatever you are becoming reveals where you are going. Can you answer that question today? Is your answer consistent With where you believe that you are going. If there's inconsistency there. What if God doesn't save you. From yourself. What if God doesn't save you from the person that you're becoming. The lurking anger inside you like a dragon. Others are afraid to wake. The quiet lust inside your heart that dominates your thoughts throughout the day. The bitterness you allow to define your relationships because of unforgiveness. The greed that controls your insatiable quest for wealth and happiness. The self-absorbed you that chases after happiness and looking a certain way. The accomplished you that's too sophisticated for a childlike dependency and delight in God. What if God does not save you? Will you set, as we just sang, and Micah prepared for us, will you prepare your heart to receive his salvation today? And I mean all of us. I mean all of us. Do we prepare him room in our hearts? Today I pray it be so. For he says this, I have no pleasure I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? This is God's heart to his people. Turn to him. 
Because God is gracious and merciful, he has promised his redeemed a hope. And so we start out this way because the hope of our eternity can only be grasped in the reality of what the alternative is. The hope that which is ours for all eternity in Christ is only as great and is only as magnificent as we understand the alternative. That apart from Christ, there is no hope. You guys follow me? So I want to give us five promised realities that God gives his redeemed people in chapter 35. Actually, I'm going to go down to four. I start at five, and because of time, we're only doing four, all right? Four promised realities by God for his redeemed people. So read with me in verse one of chapter 35, verse one and two. He says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. The readers of, in, in Isaiah's time were likely drawn back to, their, to God's people being led through the wilderness and being delivered from Pharaoh's hand, right? Freed from slavery. And then the, the pain and the agony that they experienced along the way of journeying through the wilderness. They not only had to believe that God would save them from their slavery, but also delivered them to where he promised he was going to deliver them. To the land of Canaan, the promised land. A land of abundance, no lacking. A land of joyfulness and rejoicing, no tears. You can see some similarities, right? And in, in our longing and our waiting for Christ to return. This is where God's people were. They were being led to this. They're saying, God promised it. And they were faithful at times and unfaithful at others. And God used, um, he used some, he used a pillar of cloud by day to lead them in a pillar of fire by night. It was a, a symbol of his glory, of his presence to his people, that even when they didn't feel like he was working, he was there, he was present, he was leading them, he was working things out, right? God can seem often obstructed from our view. We're we're looking, we're saying, God, where are you? I I know you said that you're leading me to this end, but where are you? Because it doesn't feel like we're on track. So should I get off and... And ask for directions, like, where are we going? You know, we can often feel as though God is obstructed from our view. But the promise of a day when God's glory will be unobstructed, when we see him fully, gives us a perseverance. Because it's a sure end. It's a perseverance because we know that this life is but momentary, church, in comparison to all eternity. This little blip on the screen of us having to wander through the wilderness led by God. If nothing more than just some abstract cloud or pillar that we see and we're like, I don't know if it's going the right way, but I'm trusting God's leading me there. Even if that's the case, even if that is all the way to the end, it is but a blip on the screen of all eternity. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace, says the great hymn, The Solid Rock. Lebanon here is a representation um, of God's mighty, powerful acts. It's used often in the Psalms. 
And um, Carmel and Sharon are representations of his beauty and his character. And so get this, it is saying that the fullness of God's glory, his beauty, his character, all of him, his full person will be given to the land. And what would the land do? It will respond with joy and singing. And what we've seen just in passing of God's glory Just these little glimpses that God gives us of his glory. The cloud of fire and the cloud of smoke for the Israelites. The little moments in your life where you see God is at work. I know it. I know it deep down. Those little moments, those little glimpses of his glory, the passing glimpses, we will see fully. It's going to be the difference of somebody taking the, a picture of the Grand Canyon and holding it in front of your face for two seconds and then taking it away and you're like, oh, that was stunning. And then standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and taking it all in. That's the difference of what we experience with there's something good there. There's something large and magnificent and splendid there. But we only see passing by glimpses of it. For now we see, as Paul tells us, in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face, now in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. God's point in this, it always has been and always will, is that he desires for you, church, to be with him. To be with him. He wants to share himself with his people. And so he chose to rescue his people from slavery and to be with them every single moment, visibly, even though that he was, regardless, he chose to be there visibly in a cloud of pillar and a cloud or a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire. God's choice is that he wants to share himself with you, to bring us into his glory, and one day that will be fully experienced. Amen. Second point, um, or second promised reality to God's people is this. There will be a vengeance on sin. Verse 3 and 4, read this with me. Or 3 through 7. We're going to read a little chunk here. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters. Break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals where they lie down the grass shall become reeds and rushes. What is the response to hearing the promise of God? The response is, Strengthened hands, firm, fixed knees. Hands representing personal action. As we say, put your hand to the task. And knees representing stability, perseverance. As we say, stand firm. This is why you need the church. This is why we need each other. To be reminded of the promises of God. So that in response, we might be strengthened and we may become stable and become fixed in what we know to be true. Because my hands do not feel strong all the time. 
And often it feels like the life is just slipping through my fingers and I'm losing a grip on everything that's around me. Often my knees feel like they're buckling underneath me and the weight of the world is crushing me and I need my brother and I need my sister to come on my left and my right to lift my arms up and to hold me up in the promises of God and say, you can keep going forward. Believe. This is why we need each other. This is why the promises of God are active and real and pertinent to our life. The reality of the promise that is to come, it doesn't do away with the reality of our present, right? But it supersedes our reality of the present. The reality of what is promised to come, it supersedes whatever is here. And that's what we remind ourselves of. It is your true reality, Christian. What is ahead of you is your true reality, not here and now. You are but a sojourner. You are but a passing by this. And your true reality awaits you in heaven. We fear because our eyes are not fixed on that reality. We fear because we've lost sight. And so we must especially administer encouragement in this matter. Be strong. Fear not. Be strong. Fear not. How do we not fear? We behold our God. Behold your God. Why? Because he's your God. He's your God. Beholding God and all of his glory and what he has promised and who he is removes the fear from our lives. We fix our eyes on him and not to our left and our right. Then we will not fear. And we should not fear because he is our God. He is your God. He is my God. If he was not, then you should fear. But he has chosen you and brought you in as his redeemed people. This reality tells us that we do not have to, a couple things here. One is we do not have to vindicate ourselves on this earth. We don't have to exact vengeance upon other people because vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You might feel like you've been dealt a wrong, a terrible hand in life. And that you've experienced a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of agony. And that you have to put up your defenses and your walls and you have to be on the defense and maybe the offense against anyone that might attack you. Let me tell you, Christian, you don't have to seek vengeance because God is for you. He will save you, as he says. God is coming with vengeance against all wrongdoing, all sin. All of that includes the wrong that you have suffered in life. It will be dealt with. It will be dealt with. Vengeance here is on sin, though. May we not make a mistake. The vengeance here is not... Um, it's, it's on sin. It's the sin that led to brokenness in the world. The brokenness that we understand and feel. It's the brokenness that has caused hurt. It's caused pain in life. But it is on sin. And all have sinned. And all fall short of the glory of God. And so no one's off the hook on this one. All of us are responsible for the brokenness that we see and feel in the world. The fulfillment of God's promise here is he will save you. But this does not mean that he is coming to save you from the bad guys. You are the bad guy. I'm the bad guy. 
No one will escape his judgment, but rather the promise here is that you will be saved from the judgment, within the judgment. Just like Noah and his family. When God poured his judgment on the earth and the flood came, his family, Noah and his family had to pass through the judgment, did they not? But they were spared in that judgment. So it is with us in Christ. In Christ, we are spared in God's judgment. But we must pass through his judgment. But only in Christ will we be saved. This is the good news of the gospel. Why does that matter? Because it dramatically changes how we interact and interface with the world around us. If you have a mentality that there's, I'm the good guy and there's the bad guys, and you can, and everyone else outside of Christ are the bad guys, you cannot possibly love them the way God has called you to love them. Because you'll live in a state of elitism, like you're better than everybody else. If you have a mentality that says, everyone's out to get me, and it's, a, and it's this, um, this victim mentality, then you'll live in fear. And you won't be able to love because you'll only fear what other people might do to you. But if we have a mentality that there is level ground at the foot of the cross. Ground is level at the foot of the cross. I'm no better than you. You're no better than me. Christ came to save all of us. And we'll be driven by the gospel. And the gospel will go forward. And it will be seen and it will be felt. That is salvation. That's what salvation means. And then see what happens, see what salvation actually leads to in, in, in verses 5 through 7 that we just read. It begins with the word then, this emphatic then. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Not now, but then. On the day of salvation, the new creation will be whole and right. The broken things like disease and ailments will be corrected. The places that you have been hurt and wronged will be made right. The places that only sucked up water, they'll become reservoirs of water. The uninhabitable places, uninhabitable places where jackals live will become splashy, green, grassy fields and lush open spaces. God will bring a reversal And all the wrong in the world is what these verses are telling us. John Oswald says it this way the man, the way of man is to make the in excuse me, the way of man is to make the inhabited uninhabitable. The way of God is to take the barren and make it abundant. And he's and he who seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Revelation twenty one, verse five. You will forever continually have the feeling when we get to heaven, of this is, oh, this is right. You ever have those moments where you're just like, this is right. This is good. Sometimes maybe through nature, maybe you're just, you're looking out and you're like, oh, this is right. This is perfect. This is good. Maybe it's with family. Maybe it's with children. There's just those moments God gives us, those glimpses where we've felt it's like just... Everything's right in this moment here. You're going to continually feel that over and over and over again. It's going to be completeness upon completeness, upon perfection, upon perfection, upon perfection. And we're continually going to be a state of, ah, 
This is right. This is whole. This is good. There will be no pain. There will be no suffering when that day comes. Our hope is substantive, church. Our hope is substantive. It is not naive. Paul tells us that we can believe in this day is coming, the day of salvation, because in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, you too, me too, will be raised with him. And then, he says, the end will come. The then tells us our waiting in this time is it's not indefinite. The then, that there is a certain date, there is a time established by God, the then tells us there is not an indefinacy to this. But there will be a day. So your 78.6 average years here on earth are nothing compared to all eternity. There will be completion. The third promised reality for God's redeemed, his people, is in verse 8 and 9. These next couple verses have so many just wonderful nuggets of truth in them. Um, and we're going to take our time just uh, picking out the key words and phrases and kind of break them down. So read with me in verse 8. And a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. God is a God of joy. Oh, that's my next point. Sorry. <laughs> Highway. Highway. Isaiah's point here in this is he's meaning a literal highway, like a high road. Like it's unmistakable, is his point. And it's called the way of holiness. No unclean person shall walk there. Unclean meaning sinful. So we've just said that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is coming for vengeance unto all sin. So how then does someone walk on the way of holiness? This presents quite a problem for us. It's a very serious requirement of us to be without sin. And we learn a lot about God here in this short verse. J.A. Mortier, in his commentary on this, says this profound statement, The Lord never reduces his standards to match the weakness of his people. He raises his people to the height of his standards. God has a standard of holiness. He will not bring that down to match our weakness but he will raise you up to match his standard. Isaiah tells us how this is accomplished. It's in God's salvation because it is the redeemed that walk on the way of holiness. In verse 9 it says, it is the redeemed that shall walk there. Keep reading with me. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. This does not mean that Isaiah is condoning foolishness, right? But rather contrast this with the word unclean in verse 9. He's saying that there's no security in intellectualism. 
You can be astute in the way of religion, every religion. You can have every argument in the book for the Bible's teaching. But unless you are washed clean of your sins, you will end up at an impasse on this day. Because it is not a matter of how much you know or how much you understand. It is a matter of your heart. It is a matter of what's inside your heart. Is there nothing but sinfulness there? Is there nothing but uncleanliness there? Then God says that you will not walk on my way of holiness. Jesus said in John 14, and see how this just aligns so perfectly with this text. He says in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, why would I have, to, or would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What's essential for every single one of us here today is to understand that you and me walking on the way of holiness has nothing to do with us. Has nothing to do with what we bring to the table. Has everything to do with Jesus forgiving you Saving you from your sins, cleansing you from all your sins, washing you white as snow, giving you a new heart to follow him and justifying you before the Father for all eternity. It is based upon that and that way. Jesus is the way of holiness. You cannot be holy on your own. God's standard is set and he has made a way to raise you up to that standard and it is only through Christ. To walk on the way of holiness is to follow Jesus. Do you trust Jesus as your way? Do you trust him as the way? Or are you trusting in a different way, a different salvation? Whichever it is, whichever way you choose, it is certain. It will have a lasting effect for all eternity. It's a sure thing. There is no way to God's kingdom except through Christ. But through Christ, there is no fear of security in that. For he tells us that even if you're foolish, even if you are a fool, church, you will not go astray. That's assurance right there. That God keeps his people. Now again, I don't condone foolishness. But it has nothing to do with you. And he will keep you so much that not even a single thing, not even yourself, not even the ravenous beast, not even the lion along the way would be able to take you out. That's what he means there. There will be nothing to obstruct you on this way. God will keep you. This is what it means to be redeemed. Christ pays the price for you. You get in free. That's the deal. That's the good news. Christ pays the price for you. You get in free. That's the deal. Where are you trusting today? The last promise reality for God's people is the people of the Lord will meet his joy. Verse 10, read with me. And the ransom of the Lord shall return. 
And come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. And they shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. We've reached the, the pinnacle of all these all of these promises and what I believe to be the culmination of each of them, it's the fullness of God's promises. It's his joy. That he promises us his joy. God is a God of joy, church. God is a God of joy. And he is generous in so much that he does not hold anything back from us. He gives us all of himself, all of his joy, the share in his joy for all eternity. The ransom and all creation, for that matter, will return to God with an inexpressible joy that all this waiting was worth it. We'll return and we'll say it was worth every minute here on earth. The joy that we experienced then will outshine every sorrow we have now. What a day that will be. If you looked up the definition to the word joy, you'd find this. A feeling of great pleasure and happiness. That doesn't, that really doesn't do it justice, does it? I mean, not the joy that we're talking about. I mean, I guess it does make sense, but... We've all experienced a level of joy in life. Moments that will stay with us forever. And they're like etched in our minds like a branding. And they're the things that we come back to to kind of keep us moving forward. These moments of joy in our life. C.S. Lewis in his book, Surprised by Joy. It's a great book. If you haven't read it, I really encourage you to. It talks about how he went from being an an, an atheist to a theist and then eventually a Christian. And he, and he describes the joy that he um, experienced in life. And in particular, he uses three different examples of his early childhood. He calls them stabs of joy. I love that. Stabs of joy. And the pangs of after the joy was gone was, I want more of that joy. And it's early, early childhood, like simple, mundane things, right? Like we're sharing a toy with a friend or something, right? And he says this, and it's kind of a lengthy quote. I'm going to read it for you. The quality common to these three experiences is that of an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy, which is here a technical term and must be sharply distinguished both from happiness and from pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and only one in common with them. The fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. Apart from that, and considered only in its quality, it might almost equally be called a particular kind of unhappiness or grief. But then, it is a kind we want. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. But then joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. Pleasure can be joy. But when sought after as the ultimate thing, it can be easily confused with joy. I wonder what momentary pleasures have you given yourself to now, because they're just immediately accessible to you. But God wanted to give you joy. 
Or to say it another way, what joy have you forfeited in life because you sought after the very immediate things, pleasures of this world? What things have you chosen to do and seek after and, and, and indulge in, however good the thing might be in itself, to indulge yourself in those immediate gratifications and have forfeited a joy that would come from maybe abstaining from that or to give yourself to God in a different way. What joy have you forfeited in life? I know I can think of countless moments and countless times in my life where this has been so. Joy is always a gift that God has given us. But when we when we exchange God for the gift, we actually end up in disobedience and being sinful. We exchange the thing that God has given us instead of God, God for the thing, then we get them mixed up. We might enjoy a momentary pleasure, but not the lasting joy. And it's these moments of joy that God has given us as a signpost to the day ahead. It's like if you're on a road and you see a sign and, you, and it's telling you, you know, 30 miles up, is this coming up? That's the joy that God gives us in life. These momentary joys, a signpost pointing to something up ahead. There's something coming that's greater. Just keep going. Just keep going. We, ex- we know that joy is one of the greatest gifts, and, and especially in times of deep sorrow and loss, because one of the greatest miracles in all of life is that the Christian can experience a joy in the darkest moments that they have. That we can actually have joy in, the, in great loss in life. What a gift. This is because the joy is not attached to things. It is a, it is, God is the object of the joy. And because he is transcendent, he's not limited by any means of you experiencing his joy. But God has to be the object of it. You follow? If the thing is the object, then you cannot experience the joy of God. But if God is the object, then you can experience God in all areas of life. And those can be used by God to point you to that future reality that is yours in Christ. This is how God is leading his people. This is how over all of time we can see that God has had a plan. That even though the people in the wilderness did not see it, they ended up there. If they just kept trusting God. That all through history and all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, now on the other side of the cross, we see Christ. We see the glory of Christ in the face of Jesus, or the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And we know that even though it's just a a very foggy picture of him, we know that one day we will see him fully face to face. This is the joy that is ours in Christ. And these signposts point to the deeper reality. The small glimpses of joy we experience on earth will find their full resolve in a sustainable joy. The small glimpses we experience now will have a full resolve and it will be sustainable. Our joy will be complete. When it says they shall obtain, I think the NIV actually says it a little better. Where it says they shall obtain joy, or gladness and joy. NIV says this, gladness and joy will overtake them. 
that's used kind of elsewhere in Deuteronomy when God says, my blessings will overtake you. You'll be overtaken with my blessings. Even then, even then on the day when we see Christ and we experience the fullness of joy and all sorrow will will flee away because we'll be overtaken with this joy, even then it, it will be joyous because we will be in Zion and we will be with God. That's the reason it will be joyful. That's the reason it will be joyous. So may we find our deepest satisfaction in Jesus, ever grateful for the many ways that God reminds us of our future home. I'm finished with this last quote from the same book, Surprised by Joy by C.S. Lewis. In his final chapter, he writes these these things, uh, these words. And he's talking about these signposts that I mentioned and how as he became more aware of it, became more familiar, the signposts became more familiar to him, the small glimpses of joy. And he says this, he who first sees it cries, look, the whole party gathers around and stares, but when we have found the road and are passing signposts every few miles, we shall not stop and stare. They will encourage us and shall, and we shall be grateful to the authority that set them up. But we shall not stop and stare or not much, not on this road, though their pillars are silver and their lettering of gold. We would be at Jerusalem, our future home, church. That's where our joy is leading us future home with Zion and God. We're going to take communion now and, it, and lead into a time of celebration. Sometimes we are more somber during our communion, uh, taking communion, and other times um, we, we try to be a little more celebratory. So uh, communion uh, servers, would you come and serve us in communion? And the band's going to lead us in this song that says, um, My sins are nailed to the cross. My shame has been nailed and washed away. And as we take communion today, we understand and believe that this is reality. That this is our true reality. That no matter what we feel and experience today, our true reality supersedes our current reality. Our true reality in Christ. So when we take the bread and we dip it into the cup, we say and we proclaim, Jesus, I trust in you. I want to keep trusting in you. Help me to keep trusting in you as my only hope. If that's you today and you say that, you say, yeah, I want to say that. I want to proclaim that. Then you're invited to the table. If that's not you today, we're so happy that you're here. We're so glad that you're here. We just ask that you at your seat ask yourself, what is God speaking to me? What is he trying to say to me? Because we believe he is. Come church, would you stand on your feet? Let's take communion together. Let's celebrate this as we sing this song, the great news that we have in Christ.